God has been speaking to us out of the book of James for the last month or so. Uh, If you're new to All Saints, it's our practice to normally work our way through a book of the Bible, and so I think I started James at the end of August, and here we are um, nearing the end of September. To remind you uh, of an important verse that he spoke at the uh, conclusion of chapter 1, James writes that if anyone considers himself religious but fails to keep a tight rein on their tongue, such religion is worthless. He goes on, the religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to um, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James is making this point that if you are really a Christian, it will show up in these three areas, how you treat the poor, how you relate to the world, and how you speak. And then the rest of the letter is kind of an unpacking of that because chapter two, we looked at it last week, was uh, focused on how we treat the poor. Chapters four and five, which we're going to look at in a few weeks' uh, time, how do we live a distinctively Christian life in a hostile world? And then today, chapter three, is his very famous passage um, on our tongues. Here's a fun little fact of information to, get, to begin. The average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. Did you know that? 20%. I mean, some people are going to be more, some are going to be less, but the average is 20%. If all of our words in the course of a day were to be transcribed, they would fill up about 50 normal-sized pages. So over the course of the week, we would fill up, the average person, 350 pages. You say, 350 pages, that's, that's kind of a decent-sized book. So the average person would produce 52 of those over the course of the year. If you live to be 80 years old, how many books are going to end up on your bookshelf at the end of your life? 4,160 books filled with your own words. Which one of those books would you want to read first? It got me thinking this week how how cool and how horrifying (laughs) it would be to walk into a room in my house or to walk into some library and there's a a bookshelf and on it are thousands of bound copies of my own words. What book would I pull off the shelf and start reading first? The answer for me is... I would want to start back in my childhood. I can't remember pretty much anything earlier than the age of 16. <laughs> uh, my memory, and those of you who have been with, us for, with me for a while, you know my memory is pretty terrible, but I would like to go back to elementary school days and see what was it that I was thinking in, in the sixth grade or in the third grade. Um, and my mom died when I was um, 20, I would like to go back and look at conversations that I had with her. What did I say to her? You're the same way. There are deceased um, loved ones in your life. You you wish you could just go back and see those words. Um, There would be words that would surprise us. You would read it and you would be like, I I don't remember saying that. I, I can't believe that I ever thought that or that I ever said that. And there would be some wonderful words. You're like, how did that come out of my mouth? 
That was beautiful. And then there would be truly horrifying words, words that we would be so ashamed to look at, frightening words. I say frightening because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. If you're in a profession like mine, where you uh, have a job as a teacher or, or as a pastor, uh, James, beginning of this chapter, sends a shiver down your spine. <laughs> if you look at it here in verse 1, he warns us that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And probably for a couple of different reasons. I mean, obviously... If you're teaching other people, then um, you have a great deal of influence over them. And if you teach them things that are false and you send them on the, the wrong course, I mean, God takes that very seriously. But the other part is, uh, what is the proverb that says in the multitude of words, uh, in a multitude of words, transgression is not lacking? <laughs> in other words, the more you talk, the, the more you get yourself into trouble. Um, I suppose that's true. In a broad sense, though, every one of us are teachers. I mean, we, we're, we teach somebody. We, um, we're, we're giving instruction and, and leading people. It's not just pastors and teachers and doctors and attorneys. It's, it's all of us. And God cares very, very much about what we have to say, you know, what's included in those volumes. Verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And the only perfect man, the only one who was able to perfectly bridle his tongue was the one we've sung about. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or, or take ships as an example. Although they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also, it also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of birds, or animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come Come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So consider the three metaphors. There are three metaphors found at the beginning of the passage in verses 3 through 5. And, uh, simple metaphors, what's the point of them? He says, a tiny bit in the mouth of a horse moves the giant horse. 
A tiny rudder moves the giant ship. A tiny spark ignites the millions and and millions of acres up in North Idaho. What's he trying to get? He's saying that words are small. Words are really small. If you can consider, I mean, all I'm doing right now is pressing air out of my mouth with various intonations. I mean, it's just, it's just breath. It's mere breath. It's, it's nothing but that air and, and sound waves that are somehow matriculating down into your ear. It's, not, it's just, they're tiny. It's nothing. It's just the movement of breath. But if a father has two daughters and he uses his breath to say to one, you are pretty, and he uses his breath to say to the other, you are not And if he says to one, I am pleased with you, and to the other, I am not, those are not just material sound waves. Those those go inside us and shape us so powerfully, do they not? You might say, our words are small, but they are magical. They have this magical power um, for good or for ill. They're medicine or or they're poison, and they are so because they're injected like, directly inside of you. For instance, we'd agree that uh, self-image, some, how you see yourself is very important. You know, your sense of self-image has a tremendous effect on the way that uh, you, you, know, you live your life, the course of your life. Well, where do you think a self-image comes from? It comes mostly from words. Yeah, your self-image is mostly the accumulation of things that have been said about you, you know, by your father, by your mother, by your teachers, by, um, by your friends. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but not much. That is why the author of Proverbs in Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The accumulation of those verdicts and judgments are like death and life to you. They make or break how you see yourself, how you live out your life. Um, There are people here who are 50 years old, and you are still dealing with things that were said to you at the age of 10. Why is that? It's because those tiny things have such uh, a magical quality to them. The power of words are, are also irretrievable once you say them. It's the uh, uh, proverbial arrow. You, know, you pull the arrow taut on the bowstring. Uh, and then once you let it go, it's gone. There, I mean, there's no, nobody can reach out and grab the arrow in the middle of the air. As soon as you let it, let it go, um, it's gone forever. Proverbs 12, verse 18. I, I'm going to end up citing a lot of Proverbs today because there are something like 60 different Proverbs in the Bible that speak about our speech. Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. If you stab somebody with a sword and then you say to them, I'm sorry, and you pull the sword out, I mean, the sword is gone, but the wound remains. If you... If you Fly the arrow, the biting, cutting remark to your spouse or uh, to your colleague, and then you, I'm really sorry for saying that, and you pull that out. I mean, they're still going to bleed because the wound remains, because 
words have that kind of, of power. When you step back and think about it, it is crazy that our words have such power. It is insane that middle school age teenage girls you know, have a loaded 9 millimeter between their mouths with which to kill each other, and they do. It's amazing that so much power is given to people who have no business and no right to possess it. But that's, that's the power of words. You think of the, uh, um, the hundreds and hundreds of stories of teenagers who have taken their own lives, who have committed suicide, because, not because they were depressed necessarily, but because of the incessant, constant bullying, belittling, mocking words from their peers on, on social media or, or, or otherwise. So one of the best books that you can get out there if you want to try and really attack your word problem, because you got a word problem and so do I, is Paul David Tripp's book here, War of Words, Getting to the Heart of Your Communication Struggles. It's not simply a, a couple's communication book. It's really a book that, that gets down and deals with our hearts. But he says, he says the, reason, the reason words are powerful, important, and significant is because God ordained them to be that way. When we speak, it must be with the realization that it is God who has given words such significance. Now, he has ordained them to be important. They were significant at creation. It was with words that he created the universe and spoke it into existence. They were significant at the fall. It was lying words and self-justifying, excusing words that were found there. And it's, it was certainly significant on the cross. We just sang about it a minute ago. Father, forgive them. Forgive them and forgive me. So... You know, God has given our words tremendous uh, power. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. Proverbs 12, 18 again says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What are some of the, the deeply, wonderfully healing words that somebody has spoken to you at, at some point in your life? That would be a really good exercise for you to do this, this week, maybe during your devotional time. It's to step back and, and think, okay, what were those words that were of such joy and encouragement that they brought me healing and life? Um, some of you are familiar with Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb is a popular Christian author and Christian counselor, uh, guru, guru dude. Um, when he was young, he was a stutterer, and he was terrified of public speaking, but he thought, yeah, I got to try to deal with this. I should try to get over this fear. So one day, Larry Crabb went to a prayer meeting at his church where they had an open mic, and you were able to come up. Anybody been to a prayer meeting like that before? There's the open mic. You come up, take the mic, and, and you start praying. Uh, and so he did. And he says in his own <laughs> recollection of the event, he said, I prayed perhaps the worst prayer ever uttered by a Christian that day. He said, my prayer was horrible. It was stuttering. It was probably heretical. I was you know, probably thanking the Holy Spirit for dying on the cross for my sins and you know, totally messing up the Trinity. And he said, I couldn't get back to my seat fast enough. And I just sat there and looked at my shoes for the remainder of the meeting. And as soon as it was over, I made a beeline for the door. And there at the door was the most austere elder at our church. And he stopped me before I left. And he said, Larry... I don't know what God has for you to do to serve him in the future, 
But whatever it is, I want you to know, I am behind you, man. I am behind you. He said, I never, I never forgot what that man, those words that that man spoke to me. The problem is we do forget. And it's a very good exercise for us to remember those words and to give thanks to God for them. I said just a few minutes ago that I find it crazy that God gives our, such power to our words, such power to hurt. And that seems to be one of the major themes that James brings out here in chapter 3, the, the devastating power and effect of our words. But parents, isn't this also wonderfully crazy and astounding that we could speak words that would shape our children's identities for the rest of their lives? Isn't it incredible that we are given by God that kind of power to speak words which would shape the next 70, 80, 90 years of their lives? What a privilege (laughs) that God would allow me and allow you to do that. To say, son, you are the bravest, coolest dude I have ever met in my life, and I am so proud of you that you're my son. I am the proudest man alive because I am your father. Or, or daughter, you are the most beautiful, witty, fun person in the world to be around, and I absolutely just love being around you. You're amazing. To think that we can can say that, <laughs> give that kind of encouragement. Um, you remember the words that were spoken to Jesus right before the, the most difficult period of his life? Those three years of public ministry, at the very beginning of it, Jesus needed to hear these words, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Like even Jesus needed a word from the outside. And we do. Oh, man, we need a word from the outside. The conventional wisdom that says, don't care what other people think about you. Just be yourself. I mean, don't listen to the opinions of other, of other people. No way. We were not made to live that way. We all need a word from the outside. We all need a word from the outside. If you're an, a musician or an artist, you need somebody to come and say, man, that was a great song. Wow, what an incredible piece of art you've made. You need someone to validate your work and tell you that it's good. And every one of us needs a word from the outside to do the same for us. As one author provocatively puts it, he says, look, we get our sense of self, we get our our very humanity from what other people tell us. He says, I would go so far as to assert that you don't even know who you are until somebody tells you who you are. So important are those words for us to hear. James here gives us two very practical guidelines that uh, direct us on how we can fix our speech. We all have pretty big speech problems. So he gives us two things, two practical ideas. How can we fix our speech? And they are these. Number one is found in verse 7. Yeah. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. And I guess maybe that's not the best part to read. Earlier in the, uh, the verse, he speaks about how the tongue is a restless animal. Specifically, the tongue is like a wild horse. 
several thousand pound ferocious Mustang, which is always wanting to just break out and run and, and, and knock everything over. It's just this furious Mustang. What do you do with a horse like that? He says, you have to bridle it. That's his first metaphor, a practical metaphor of instruction. You must bridle your tongue. And bridling your tongue ultimately leads to um, directing your life. So when you put a bit in the mouth of a horse, I mean, it's only a small little piece of steel. But if it is attached to reins and you pull, that's going to pull the horse's mouth to the right. If you pull the right, the horse is going to go to the right. That's his image. You yank it to the left, you pull up, and the entire course of this wild horse, uh, oh, that rhymes. <laughs> this, you can direct it in the way that you wish it to go. I think he's saying something about our, our hearts and our souls. If you bridle your tongue, no, it will not fix everything, but it will direct you in uh, a better way to go. The classic exploration of faith and community was written by German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1940s. Life Together, I've made reference to Life Together a number of times in the past. Uh, Bonhoeffer was in charge of a small clandestine theological seminary in Germany in the 1940s, hidden away from the Nazis and from the German state church for fear uh, that they would have crushed it. And these are basically his ideas, his meditations, his instruction, really his instruction to his seminary students on how do we live and have robust Christian community. One of the sections in this book is entitled The Ministry of Holding Your Tongue. And here's what he says to his seminary students. He says, often, often we can combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. Isolated thoughts of judgment can be curbed and even smothered by never allowing them the right to be uttered. So he made it a rule in their little seminary that you are never allowed to speak about another person unless they were in the room. He goes on, quote, even if it's under the cloak of help and goodwill, you're still not allowed to talk about them. For it is precisely in this guise that the spirit of hatred among brothers always creeps in when it... it uh, and thus it seeks to create mischief. Isn't that true? That if you refuse to say something about that person who annoys you or that person who hurts you, if you refuse to just even allow yourself to verbalize it, um, it helps. And when you do verbalize it, it really does affect the way you interact with them or the way that you see them. It certainly does. Now, Bonhoeffer, he knew that exceptions had to be made to this rule. But in essence, he was saying, brothers, let's not talk about someone we dislike unless it is to praise them. I will, I will praise them behind their back. Um, I will talk about them if it's in order to pursue reconciliation and, and healing. But otherwise, I will keep my mouth shut. And there's that other proverb. I forget which one, it, where it is, but it says, he who... He who guards his mouth keeps watch over his soul. It's a bridle. It's a bridle. Likewise, uh, some of us have gone through a discipleship curriculum, which is kind of big in other parts of our denomination, the PCA, on the East Coast. It's called Sonship. 
Anybody done sonship here? Uh, nobody? Wow. It, Fry, isn't that strange that nobody in a church, yeah, on the East Coast and then the Southeast, everybody does sonship. The essence of sonship is basically you don't live like a son and daughter of the king. You don't live, you, you say that you're saved by grace, but you don't really live in grace. You oftentimes live in a works-based mentality with an orphan spirit. You don't live like, like a well-beloved son or daughter. But one of the assignments, the most infamous assignment that they give you to do in sonship is the seven tongue laws, for lack of a better word. Seven laws that you have to keep for a week. How well would you do if, if I gave you these laws you know, for the next seven days? You've got to follow these seven rules. Don't gossip. Don't complain. Don't blame shift or make excuses. Don't boast about anything. But do speak only good about others. Do confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. And do thank God in all circumstances. Would you make it a day? (laughs) Would you go a day without breaking those rules? I mean, would we make it an hour? (laughs) We wouldn't even make it an hour, would we? The big part, the major reason why they give this exercise is to show us just how, um, how messed up we are inside, how, how broken and, and diseased our hearts are, and how much we need the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you will stop and listen to yourself, I mean, think about how much of our communication involves complaining about our circumstances, our bills, our tough neighbors, our difficult job, our rebellious children, our distant husbands, our unappreciative wives, our ineffective pastors, our, def- our defective lawnmowers, our broken down cars, uh, our inability to afford a good at vacation. How much of our words express irritation towards people who get in our way or envy towards others who seem to have things much easier than we do? Um, so yeah, the point of the exercise is to demonstrate what a mess we are and how much we need je- Jesus. But there's another good benefit from the exercise, and that is... That is a very full bridal. Those seven laws make for a a leather uh, rhinestone bridal. Jeez, why do I come up with some of these things? (laughs) The second practical thing James tells us to do here, it's listen. So bridal and listen. Pretty easy points to remember today, right? Listen, listen. Do you want to understand yourself better? Do you want to grow as a human being? Then you have to take the time to really listen to your own words. Because we don't really hear ourselves very often or very well. And yet our words are the clearest indicator of what's going on inside of us. What, what is in your heart? Is there a, a fountain of a spring of fresh water there? As James talks about that metaphor at the end? Or is there this kind of slimy, brackish, salty pool with pond scum? What is inside of my heart? I find out what's inside of my heart when I hear myself speak. Bitter words come from a bitter heart. Critical words, they come from a critical heart. 
boastful words or gossiping words. They come from a person who feels small inside. Hurtful words come from a wounded and angry spirit. Unloving speech, unloving words comes from a person who probably doesn't feel very loved by God or loved by others. So if you want to figure out yourself, why don't you listen to yourself? We bring our hearts out in public all the time. We cannot help it. Our, our words out us. They reveal us. Jesus said this. He said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, your words are the clearest indicator of your functioning belief system. I heard this illustration. I've seen it happen um, many times with a counselor. Counselors know this. If you get a person and you, you get them in a room and you get them to start talking, and they start talking in an unguarded, very honest way, you'll find out very quickly what's inside of that person. In fact, that person will end up saying things, and, and they'll, they'll be like, whoa, where did that come from? I didn't know that was inside of me. Wow, has anybody ever had that happen before? You, where did that where did that board come from? I didn't know that I believed that. I guess I really do believe that. Yes, what you believe about yourself <clears throat> and what you believe about God, what you believe about other people, it is all there for the listening. Your words will show you you. If you listen to your bitter words and your hurtful words, they will show you the places where the gospel still needs to come and still needs to heal and and tenderize. Okay, let me conclude with verse 6. There, he uh, says that the, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. In 1871, a fire started in a small cow barn in Chicago. Within three days, 17,500 buildings were destroyed. 100,000 Chicagoans were homeless. Historians say that today that they say we don't know exactly what caused the Great Chicago Fire. Some suggest that it was a cow who knocked over a lantern. But here James says we know what sets the tongue on fire. He says the tongue, our tongues are set on fire by hell. The actual word that he uses is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was basically it was a trash heap outside of the city of Jerusalem. That was always burning. They would burn the, tra- the city's trash. They would burn you know, dead carcasses. They would uh, burn um, things like that. And so Gehenna was this garbage dump that they kept burning day and night. And here's James' metaphor. Hell is this burning rubbish dump that's burning day and night that shoots sparks up into, uh, up into our tongues. And out of our tongues comes gossip, slander, lies, profanity, flattery, False witness, fire. He says fire comes out, which consumes all of uh, us and the people around us. That's the the bad news, the true news. But if you're a student of the Bible, you know that there is another fire that that sets the tongue ablaze in the scriptures. And it's found in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. 
the disciples have all gathered together right after Jesus has been, well, a, a few weeks after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And they're gathered together, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon these disciples. Do you remember what shape the fire takes as it's coming down and resting above the heads of the disciples? What's the shape that it takes? It takes the shape of tongues. They're, they're tongues of fire. And with this, these tongues of fire, God heals these people's tongues. And they are enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak wonderful words, amazing words, words of compassion compelling beauty about the things that Jesus has done for them and the things that God has done in that city and raising Jesus from the dead. So it's what a picture. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. The fire comes down from heaven rather than coming up from hell and the fire heals our speech. God can heal our speech because he can touch our hearts. I mean, if your heart gets changed, your words will be changed. I mean, the greatest battle is the battle that goes on inside of us, but we're not alone in that battle because we believe the Holy Spirit is inside of us if we're in Christ. If we're true believers in Christ, then we're not alone. And he can bring the power of the gospel upon us. It's the Holy Spirit who takes poison tongues and makes them sweet again. And you should ask him to do that this week. Lord, set my tongue on fire by heaven. No longer allow it to be kindled by the fires of hell below, but use my tongue to praise you, my Lord and Father, and to build up others who have been made in your likeness. Uh, Make that your prayer. Make that your aim. Um, And all God's people said, (laughs) amen.